Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. If you're hungry for that encounter, if you're dying to know the love of God, which alone makes sense out of life, if you're longing to know that you matter so much and that his power can fill you, with all that you need so that you can be the man or the woman that you want to be, then join me and dig into the scriptures and the teachings of the church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. This is the second part of a six-part mission series called No Greater Love Has a Man Than This. Here is Father John Ricardo. Father, we have just feasted on the body and the blood of your Son, whose sacrifice has made our peace with you and restored us to friendship with you. Father, we pray that the power of the sacrament that we have just received would continue to flow through us and transform us and give to us tonight in a particular way the grace to be merciful as you have been with us. Lord, these are tremendous days of reconciliation. So we ask that you would give us an abundance of your Holy Spirit to respond to the graces that you are making available to us, not just to get right with you, but with each other. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us tonight in this chapel in a particular way, even as we sit here in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. We ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week we began our mission by looking at the seriousness of sin. Hopefully by now we've all seen what is turning out to be an extraordinary gift to the church and to the world everywhere, which is Mel Gibson's movie which, while not perfect, certainly gives us many very powerful images to call to mind. And so what we're trying to do in these weeks is, by drawing upon what we've seen in the film, to then apply it and to take advantage of some of the more poignant scenes that we've seen and then to learn from it so that this doesn't just remain some work of art. So last week, we kind of said a talk in anticipation of seeing the film Some of us perhaps had seen it before we gave the talk last week. The gist was to try and understand that it was so violent precisely because of me and because of my sin. And it was so violent precisely because of you and your sin. Sometimes you sense things, you know, from somewhere. Sometimes the sense is from God. Sometimes it's not. We have to discern that through a variety of different ways, but... My sense last week in a particular way was that this really is an opportune time for many of us to make some momentous changes, perhaps particularly in the area of reconciliation. And that might be for some of us in getting back to confession. It might be for some of us in reaching out, or if we can't yet reach out to someone, to at least ask the Holy Spirit to drown the animosity that might be in some of our hearts for others. And I want to build on that tonight. And so if there's a title to our reflection tonight, it's something like loving the hater to his face. might sound like a cute word until you call to mind the passion and you call to mind all the many images, which if we've seen, we have in our minds of Jesus, whether it's his look at Judas or he's trying to reach inside of Judas Not so much to ask why, but to provoke in Judas a different response than the one Judas is making now as he kisses him. Whether it's the look at Caiaphas, or the look at Peter, or the look at the guards who are scourging him, or to look at the guards who are laughing at him and bowing down in front of him as they insult him and mock him, or finally the guards who nail him to the cross. And all of a sudden, it doesn't become so cute anymore, this loving the hater to his face, which is precisely what Jesus did. 
and continues to do for all of us. One of the scenes which for me was most striking was the juxtaposition between Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, which interestingly enough were the gospel the week before that from the gospel of Luke about loving your enemies, praying for those who curse you, forgiving those who mistreat you. If they slap you in one cheek, turn the other cheek, and then all of a sudden we saw him do it. And so he's not just modeling forgiveness, there's something else that's happening there. I want to try to get into that tonight. And against that, again, as a background, I want to try and make a couple of simple points. Because he doesn't just forgive us, he doesn't just command us to do the same, he's giving us the strength to do it. It's not something that we do on our own, he does it. I think oftentimes, if you're like me anyway, some people are often afraid of God, other people are just extraordinarily presumptuous. I happen to be one of the latter. I have a family member who's the former, who would never do anything simply out of fear that God would smite him. And a lot of us live that way. That doesn't mean that we've lived flawlessly, but there's such a a great concern from us that we would never think to do anything else. Whereas in my life, I've just always known the love and the mercy of God that I've just always presumed he would forgive me. So, as I've said a number of times, perhaps in settings like this, my favorite prayer growing up was something like, forgive me, Father, for what I'm about to do. (laughs) Which is a dangerous way to live. A very dangerous way to live. It's unfortunately the negative side of having a healthy image of God, which is that God is merciful, and he is. But I think many of us presume God's forgiveness. I think we go into confession, for example, rather matter-of-factly, that this is what God does. God just forgives us. We presume that. That's why we're here. We say the words. He forgives. That's it. We're at peace. That's also a dangerous way to think to take for granted, if you will, the cost that it was which purchased our forgiveness. The other thing I think that we fail to do is we fail to really accurately understand how much he has forgiven us. And so I want to give tonight as an illustration of that what to me anyway is probably the clearest example of this from scriptures. If you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew 18 beginning in verse 21. If you don't, just follow along with me. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Because there has to be a limit, right? Same person doing the same thing over and over and over, just like my confession. (laughs) The same thing over and over and over. So Peter, in an effort of great magnanimity, says as many as seven times. Seven's the number of completion or fulfillment for the Jews. As many as seven times should I forgive him? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, to the nth, you never stop. And then Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But that same servant, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and besought him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. 
Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord delivered him to the torturers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If there is a more difficult thing to do in life than forgive, I don't know what it is. Parables like this and Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount and even watching him sometimes perhaps in the movie seem to make sense until you're actually put in the position when someone's seriously wronged you. At which point, there's no way this applies to this situation. But again, so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want to work through this parable and point out a couple of things, talk a little bit about forgiveness, and then open it up for some time for us to talk. The king, obviously, is God. And he, in settling his accounts, calls in a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Well, that's an interesting little thing, but that means nothing to me who lives in the United States of America in the 21st century. huh? So what's a talent? Well, talent is the largest unit of currency in the Near East. And 10,000 is the highest number of counting. So in other words, this man owes the largest possible number and monetary amount that can be conceived of. A denarius... Remember, his fellow servant owes him a hundred denarii. A denarius is the payment for a day's wage. So this fellow servant owes his brother three months' pay. The first servant whom the Lord calls in owes 100 million denarii, a little under 3,000 years' pay. He owes a debt that is infinitely beyond what he could ever pay. Whole regions and countries and their taxes would give forth maybe 200 talents in a year. This man owes 10,000 talents. The price for a slave at the time to purchase a slave was somewhere between 500 and 2,000 denarii. This man owes 100 million denarii. How many children do you think he would have to have in order to, quote unquote, pay off the debt? When the man falls down in front of him and says, be patient with me, my Lord, and I will pay you everything, he can't be speaking the truth, for he cannot pay this amount ever. And that's us. We owe God a debt we could never hope to pay, ever. Just one sin, one sin. And Adam and Eve lost paradise. The whole human race was stained by original sin, We lost eternal life for a time. We suffered with all the tragedies that we continue to suffer with because of their one sin. For one sin, the angels lost paradise in heaven. Just one sin. How many sins do I have? How many sins do you have? As St. Ignatius of Loyola once said, Lord, I'm amazed the ground doesn't just open up and swallow me to get rid of me after what I've done to your face over and over and over and over again. And yet I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. I'm not just alive and breathing, but he calls me friend. I don't know how. And not just friend, but he calls me to this life so as to be able to offer that sacrifice which makes possible our forgiveness. How many sins do we have in our lives? And yet God writes off the whole debt if we implore him sincerely from the heart. Meanwhile... Our brothers and our sisters owe us some trifling little payment, to keep with the analogy of monetary. Now, that doesn't mean that what's been done to us was trifling. That's what makes forgiveness difficult. Sometimes what's been done to us has been horrific. Abuse, slander, thievery, 
bodily injury, emotional injury, a whole set of things that have been inflicted on all of us in one way or another by others, and that we've inflicted on others ourselves. And the point isn't that those things are nothing. Those are real events which hurt Some of them so much so that they've determined how we are today in many things. Why we relate with people the way we relate with people. Why we find it difficult to love. Why we find it difficult to trust. Why we find it difficult to be around men. Why we find it difficult to be around women. Whatever it might be. They've impacted our lives. The point is that those things in comparison to our relationship with God and what we've done in breaking the relationship between a creature and the creator are dwarfed because this gap between creature and creator is infinite, whereas between creature and creature, we're on the same plane. That's important for us to grasp, I think. Otherwise, we have an unhealthy and unrealistic sense that we're supposed to say, no big deal, don't worry about it. And that's certainly not forgiveness. No big deal, don't worry about it. So this fellow servant who owes the 100 denarii or the three months pay, what's he do? He goes to his brother And he does the exact same thing, word for word and gesture for gesture, as the man who owed 10,000 talents. The only thing that's different is he doesn't say, I will pay you everything, which the first man couldn't have done. He says, I will pay you, which he could have done. And the response is, no. He refused and had him thrown into jail where he would work out the amount which was owed to him. At which point the other servants are distressed and report it to the king, who then chastises this fellow servant. Why? Obvious, huh? Because I forgave you a debt you could never have hoped to pay, and what did you do with the mercy that you received? You acted as if it was due you or owed you. It did not transform your life. It didn't flow through you onto your brother, or for us onto our brother or our sister. Rather, you just presumed upon it, and now you've gone out and you've stood upon your rights Versus another creature. And because you've stood on your rights, God says to him, so I will stand on mine. Because of your unwillingness, your blocking of the gift of grace and the gift of mercy, which I've bestowed upon you, so now I will give to you the judgment which you've given to another, which was not what I intended for you. What I intended for you was peace and mercy. That's why I wrote off the debt. But by your own rejection of that, and the reason that he rejects it, or the way by which he rejects it, is because it doesn't flow out of him. So now I will revoke my forgiveness of you. Everything, everything, everything is at stake here. Everything. Everything is at stake in forgiving. Everything. Every day we pray, forgive us our trespasses, just as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do we really want that to happen? Do we really want him to do with us as we do to each other? This is hardly just some illustration from the scriptures. huh? I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only person who's this selfish. But I kind of walk into confession and just expect God to understand the underlying circumstances which have brought me here. You know, I was stressed. I was tired. You saw what they said to me. I was a little angry. It was a long week. And so, you know, given all that, I'm here to confess this. But for the person who's wronged me, I don't care what your week was like. How dare you? How dare you treat me the way you just treated me? It's entirely the opposite. (laughs) I'm supposed to have expectations for why you could have done what you've done and be harsher with myself when I go to confession. But I don't do that. Instead, I'm more lenient with myself in confession and I'm hypercritical with you when you wrong me. Because you should know better. But God understands me. I mean, he knows what I'm made of. He allows me my one or two little pet sins. They're good for me. They keep me humble. No. Just to make sure we really do understand how often Jesus says this rather frightening reality that the measure of forgiveness, which he wants to give to everybody, that's why he became man. That's why he died for us so that we could all be reconciled with each other. But it won't work unless we then take what we've received and prodigally give it away. So Matthew 6, 12, again, forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thus ends the Our Father. But the next line is, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Well, that's a little discomforting. Or Mark chapter 11, verses 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Ephesians, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Remember the passion. Anytime these just become words, let's call to mind his blood which was shed so liberally, precisely for me and for what I'd done. And lastly, Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forgiving one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, the point here isn't that Jesus is merely giving us teachings. That's not what's happening. Christ is in us. He dwells in us. We just fed upon him. We were just nourished by his body and his blood. And because he's in us, because he nourishes us with the sacraments, he gives us the grace, the capacity to do what he does, which looks and is, in fact, so beyond what we can do on our own. Forgiveness isn't about trying to muster up enough courage and strength to just forgive somebody. Forgiveness is allowing what we've received from him to rush through us. Think of the martyrs those who were so closely conformed to Christ by his suffering, who even in the midst of their agony and their torture and their deaths were able to pray for those who were doing it. That was the striking witness. That's what won the Roman Empire to Christianity. How they saw these people in the midst of agony, not curse those who were killing them, but pray for them, forgive them. Stephen's the the model of this, the first martyr after Christ's ascension into heaven. And on his lips are the very words which were on Jesus' lips as he's being killed. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do not hold this sin against them. That too is supposed to be our prayer. But it's not about us just digging down deep and drawing on some reserve. It's about letting him at work within us. So it's not so much my mercy which is being given to you when you hurt me. It's his mercy which has been given to me which flows out of me. That's really the only way that I can authentically know that I've received his mercy is if I become something of a conductor and just let it go. Because the moment that I begin to dam up the flow of mercy, so does this flow begin to dam up. St. Augustine reportedly said, I'm still trying to find this in his writings, I've read it about other people saying about him, that he would routinely pray to God about hearing people's confessions and say, Lord, if I'm too merciful with these people, it's because you taught me to be that way. His own experience of God's overwhelming mercy, his own experience of being canceled or forgiven a debt he could never have hoped to have paid, made it somehow possible for him to look with mercy on everyone who wronged him and to try to teach others to do the same. That's why the movie can't remain something at arm's length. If it's just something we critically look at and go, well, that's not really how it happened according to Mark, and we don't get into the scene, just like if we don't get into the scriptures as we draw nearer and nearer to Holy Week, and we just think, gosh, how could those people have done that? So long as it remains out there and it's those people doing it, I'm never going to get it. The moment that we really know, wow, how did I do that? How is it I continue to do that? Those of you who've seen the movie, unfortunately, since we've seen it, have not lived flawless lives. How how is it possible that that image so quickly leaves? 
in particular moments, impatience, anger, lust, jealousy, bitterness, whatever. That's rather humbling to realize how short my memory can be. I don't want that image in my mind right now. I want this. But it's so important in these days, especially these first few weeks of Lent, to really grasp what it is that's happened to me and what's happened to you so that in those relationships that we have, and more than likely pretty much all of us have at least one person we could pretty quickly think of who our heart isn't quite right with. It's not so my father will do with each of you unless you forgive your brother with your lips. It's unless you forgive your brother from your heart, which isn't the seat of emotions or of feelings. It's the seat of action and decision-making. That's what brings us back to the point I made at the beginning, that I really do think for all of us right now to keep in mind the reading that we heard last week on Ash Wednesday Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. This is the day of favor. So respond to it. Take that seriously. Understand that God bathes us with particular grace in these weeks of Lent to make manifest with each other what he has done with us. Now, in order to do that, I just want to say something quick about what forgiveness is not. There's two things I think we have to make sure we don't fall into. One is that forgiveness has to do with feelings. It doesn't. Again, think of Jesus as he's being scourged. Remember the scene when the flagellum sticks in his back and the guard jerks it out? Remember that? It's the first time Jesus cries cries out and the guard responds to his crying out by taunting him, crying out right back at him. Jesus certainly didn't have warm, cuddly feelings for the guard who was filleting him. Nor am I supposed to have those necessarily. That's not what forgiveness is. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is that forgiveness doesn't mean that when justice has been wronged or when injustice has happened, that you just ignore the injustice. That's important too. So when someone comes to confession and they confess slander, Well, the only way by which that person can be forgiven, can receive absolution, is to make clear to the people whom they have spread the slander to that they were wrong. That's not a penance. That's justice. That's the condition for forgiveness. If I've stolen whatever from whomever and I confess it, I need to make restitution. It's not enough just to say, Father, I stole $10,000 and continue to do this every week and pretty soon amass quite a fortune. I need to give it back. The reason why this is important to see is because to work on behalf of justice when it's been wronged, when injustice has been committed, is an act of charity. If I continue to let you go on in your acts of injustice towards him, I'm not only not loving him, I'm not loving you, and I'm not loving the community. So I need to redress that somehow. That's important to understand, that forgiveness doesn't just mean forget it. When something's been done which can be undone, it must be undone. The key, though, is that my heart is right with God, that my heart is not one which is desiring you to get yours. The intention is everything. That's the key. Because if I desire you to get yours and stand on my rights, then I come precariously close to him saying to me, well, then you're going to get yours. Because the measure with which I measure is the measure with which he will measure me. That's what Jesus tells us. Is that clear? Forgiveness doesn't mean, don't worry about it, no big deal. And then to walk away. Real forgiveness is for me somehow to be able to say to him, Assuming this can happen, and it can't always happen, huh? Because sometimes the person who's wronged you wants nothing to do with you ever again. So we don't always have this opportunity. But even if I don't have this opportunity to do it face-to-face, I do have the opportunity to do it in my heart before the Lord. That can always happen. And so forgiveness is being able to say to him, what you've done to me has really hurt, and I need you to know that. But it's precisely that that I forgive. And I do not now wish that you would experience anything of what I experienced 
as a result of what you did to me. My will for you, my intention for you is peace, that God will bless you, even though you've cursed me. That's forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean he and I are going to go bowling tomorrow. I may never find the wherewithal to hang out with someone like that ever again. But that might be lots of reasons for that. It might just be prudence. There's nothing that says you continually expose yourself to wrath. Some people have shown themselves to be uninterested or unwilling in entering into a relationship. That's fine, but that'll be your choice, not mine. And in my heart, what I have to do is make sure that my heart does not wish evil for you. Because remember, God hears our thoughts. No one else does, but God hears our thoughts. And that all factors into us being right with God. That's our hearts being right with him and us forgiving our brother from the heart. Is that pretty clear? I'd like to give just some time for questions, and I can um, kind of come to you and repeat the question. But yeah, Ray. Uh, an example of the movie where Christ exemplifies this kind of forgiveness. I could give countless ones. Let me, yeah, think, think of the scene when they push Jesus off the bridge and he's hanging by the chain and he turns and there's Judas. And his look at Judas, his eye throughout huh, is how he talks almost in the movie, the one good eye. And it's always this look of invitation, confusion at the same time, huh? like, what were you thinking? But also of invitation whether it's confronting Judas there or whether it's Peter right after Peter denies him and the Lord's on the ground and he turns and he looks at him, or whether it's Caiaphas. Maybe even a better example would be Mary, watching Mary, who is suffering with her son. I mean, the movie is a pretty clear illustration of Mary cooperating with Jesus in the work of redemption. And that includes bestowing forgiveness. So whether she's looking at the guards who are doing this Think of the scene with Peter, when Peter falls down in front of Mary and says, Mother, I've denied him. And she tries to touch him. Do you notice that? She tries to hold him and he pulls back and says, No, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. And she again tries just to, it's okay. And it's okay doesn't mean, don't worry about it. It's okay means, I've seen it. God will be here. That's probably one of the more moving scenes to me of just that. And we're often, just like Peter in that case, who, when we've done something seriously wrong, huh, we feel unwilling to, to understand or to believe that God could actually welcome us back. It's easy how he could take you back, but not me. Not, not given what I know about God and what I've done. There's no way. And Mary is trying to draw us closer to the Son who draws us to the Father. So both of them together, I think, give us great illustrations of what it is that we need to put into practice. Someone else? Do you realize what's at stake? Is it clear enough? It's not at all that God is capricious or is begrudging or just holds back. God just wants to give. That's what he does. He's wasteful, if you will, with his mercy. Imagine how precious you and I must be that the Lord of all creation would come to earth and choose to go through what you saw him go through for you by name. That should tell you God thinks pretty highly of you. Probably a lot more highly than you and I think of ourselves if he's willing to do that. He who needs no one. Yes. Well, the only way to lose your salvation is to run out of Jesus' arms. To tear yourself out of Jesus' arms. That sounds nice. Unfortunately, the conditions for doing that are always within my reach. As to faith... You know, we often think of James and whatnot, you know, man is not saved by faith alone. Actually, I prefer 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. So love is what? Love's an action. Love bears all things, forgives all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So how do I know my faith is real? Well, I know my faith is real by whether or not what God has given to me is transforming me in how I live my daily life. Now, that transformation is going to go on until I am mercifully released from purgatory. Please, God, I get there. But it's still supposed to be something that I'm supposed to be cooperating with every day. Is there another more in there? 
Yeah, holding grudges is one thing. I think there's two ways to do this. Again, the first thing is to really honestly just go before the Lord in the crucifix and to say, Lord, I need to know what you've done for me because I have this, this, and this in my life which are blocks. See, my unwillingness to forgive somebody binds me. I mean, I've been there. I've lived that way. Some people who've really, really wronged me. And my own unwillingness to forgive them didn't so much impact them as it chained me. And in forgiving them, in somehow being able to respond to God's grace, which had always been there, which I didn't want anything to do with, why? Because there's a certain sense of satisfaction in holding on to anger. Anger's enjoyable to me in a perverse kind of way. I mean, it's meaty, it's great with my Italian Mediterranean blood, I just get into that. And it seems strong, whereas forgiveness seems weak. But it's not. Anger is weak. Forgiveness is strong. And so my experience of finally being able to say to somebody or to write to someone if they didn't want to talk to me was that I was light as a feather. And even in forgiving certain people, because, I mean, I've done this face-to-face and I've done it by letters. And sometimes by letters, it's, you know what, I still have real issues with you. I think what you did was harmful or wrong. And I, I hope you'll come to understand that eventually. But I don't wish you any harm. What I wish for you is God's blessings and his peace. And I want you to know that I don't hold anything against you. That goes back to the justice part that there's still this whatever out there, which is still out there. But in my heart, I'm okay. The only way it came for me, I remember this very clearly, one, one very concrete day in Rome, kneeling in front of a crucifix. Somehow God just made abundantly clear to me, it was going through the Ignatian exercises, that I should be in hell. A great way to prepare for this, to get it, is to do a general confession. General confession is where you write out your sin for your whole life, which for me filled pages and pages and pages. And I could just look at it. And it was as if God allowed me to call to mind a certain number of things in particular where I just knew my awareness was that if I had died then, at that particular time and place, my salvation would have been in jeopardy at least. And I'm still alive. God's forgiven me. But I can only extend that to the extent that I know it. Not know about it, but experience it. When I experience it, then at least at times, on good days, it can flow out of me. (laughs) Uh, It may take a while to get there because my reaction isn't quick to be merciful. My reaction is quick to stand in my rights. But it... It can't happen unless I know what he's done. Otherwise, I'm going to try and draw upon my own reserve. I don't have that much reserve. My reserve is selfish. Does that answer it? This is what I'd like to be able to do in these weeks, is to, to take something and then hopefully for us to go home, continue to to digest this and to ponder it, to ask the Lord to call to mind in our own lives, particularly this week. Last week the challenge was to call to mind Uh, or to ask the Lord to call to mind and to show us how serious my own sin is. This week, here's an easy prayer to get answered. Lord, show me someone in my life I'm not right with. Boom. Whoa, stop. (laughs) You know, just one, Lord, maybe two, but... And then begin to work on it. One one last quick anecdote. I remember when I was uh, studying abroad during Lent, pondering a passage, something like this, the Lord said to me one night in prayer, what if I had... And then he showed me a face, judge you. And I thought, oh, that would be really bad. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but he, in doing that, he made very clear, well, then maybe you should get right with that person. And so I just began to write scores of letters to people. And some of them were really hard to write. Some of them were responded to angrily. Some of them were responded to kindly. And many of them were, the experience was clenching teeth as I was doing it. But after I'd done it, came that lightness of knowing that, you know what? They may not be right with me, but I really don't hold anything against anybody. And that's a great way to be able to live. Because tomorrow there'll be another opportunity for me to have to put that into practice again, you know? But at least today... (laughs) I think, i got to do one quick thing before I go to bed tonight. I'm relatively at peace. All right, so let's just do that for this week. Let's ask the Lord to, to show us where we're not right, 
to help us understand the mercy he's extended to us, and then to pray for the grace to let that go out from us to others so that we can really bask and enjoy his mercy for us. Fair enough? Great. It's great to see you all. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's go in peace. God bless. On this edition of Christ is the Answer, Father John Ricardo continued with the second session of a six-part mission series. Look for program number 816 at AveMariaRadio.net and clicking on Store. We'll conclude this program by listening to one of a series of homilies he preached on the sacrament of marriage. Heavenly Father, the words of your Son this morning are challenging and direct. Help us as we go about the day to take them to heart, to reflect upon them, to be particularly attentive to those things which most apply to us in our own situations right now, so that we can continue to cooperate with your grace, so that we can live the life of freedom that you've made us for. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series on the sacraments this weekend at Mass. We've uh, tackled a number of them so far this week, especially given Jesus' words in the Gospel. It seems most fitting to tackle the sacrament of marriage. Big topic, especially in the culture that we're living in right now. So because of time, if no other factor, we have to be somewhat necessarily selective. I want to limit myself to three words. Covenant, sign, and power. But before we tackle the three words, let's do a quick review of what it is that we all know so well about the sacraments. First, the most basic thing about a sacrament, the essence of a sacrament, is that it's a sign. That's the first important point to keep in mind. But the second thing that we always have to keep in mind is it's a special kind of sign. It's what we call an efficacious sign, which is to say it causes to happen what it signifies. Hold on to that. For those of you who are married, we will return to it. That's extraordinary. And then third, and also most important, is the fact that the sacraments, though they're signs, so they cause to happen what they signify, are not magic. It's not enough for us simply to go through the motions, hence the point really behind the series that we're doing, because for many of us, for me, I know in my life when I was younger, when I was sporadically coming to church, I knew something was happening in the sacraments, but they were for all intents and purposes, simply rituals that I didn't really understand. I didn't know how the Lord was moving in them. And for me, the classic example was always coming to communion, which I did when I came to church anyway, although I shouldn't have always come to communion, not to church. But because my heart was so far from what was happening, though the Lord objectively was giving himself to me in the Eucharist, it was having little to no impact in my life because I came with no faith. I was just going through the motions. All right, having said that, three words. First, covenant. Marriage is a covenant. That's a problem. What's a covenant? So as one teacher who I admire greatly puts it, it's important perhaps to understand a covenant by contrasting it with what it's not. What it's not is what he calls a consumer relationship. What's a consumer relationship? A consumer relationship is one that I enter into with you. You're the vendor. You're selling me a product. And I go to you so long as the product that you give me is a good product at a good price. But the moment I find a better product at a better price, I leave you and I go to him. So I demand that you adjust to me. My needs are more important than the relationship, real as it might be, that we have. That's a consumer relationship. That's unfortunately how many people date. That's unfortunately how many people understand marriage as a consumer relationship. But marriage is a covenant. And in a covenant, the relationship is more important than my needs. In a covenant, I adjust to the other. So perhaps the strangest illustration of what a covenant is, but perhaps the most powerful, the most uh, strong word picture to understand a covenant comes in Genesis 15, when God enters into a covenant with Abraham. And he has him do something, which sounds really strange to us because we don't do these things anymore. But everybody back then in ancient times understood that this is how you enter into a covenant. God tells Abraham, go get a bunch of animals, take them and cut them in half. Put half the animals on this side, and half the animals on this side and create an aisle, just like this one between the two of them. And then what happens when you enter into a covenant, the one person who's making a pledge to the other walks through the pieces of the animals that have been cut in half and says, I will be faithful to you. And if I'm not, then what's happened to these animals may it happen to me. That's a covenant. 
That's far more than a promise. Some of us who are dating would do well to keep that in mind. If I'm not willing to say that about the person that I'm dating, I probably shouldn't be dating them. Now, obviously, to enter into marriage that's going to be fruitful and that's going to work, both people have to be willing to enter into that. Otherwise, you're going to get an abusive relationship. But if both people understand what it is to enter into a covenant and they do so in that fashion, then a host of things happen, two of which, to me anyway, seem particularly striking. One of them is, I finally have the freedom to be me. Most of us spend our whole lives with masks up. We don't want to let other people know who we really are. But one of the graces of marriage is supposed to be, I can finally let the mask down. I can stop performing. I can stop acting. I can stop projecting my ideal self and I can just be me, the real me. And the gift of marriage is the other person loves, not the ideal me, the real me, which is extraordinary, quite frankly. The other thing that happens if two people enter into a covenant in this fashion is I get freedom from what we might call the tyranny of feelings, which is really important because feelings come and go. In a couple of months, he's going to be ordained to the priesthood. I will guarantee you, from my experience, that on the day of his ordination, when he's lying on the floor and we're praying the litany of the saints over him, asking God to pour out the gift of his Holy Spirit to conform him to the heart of Jesus, the good shepherd and the high priest, he's going to have an experience inside of him that's going to be very analogous to the experience that those of you who are married had on the day that you were married. It's going to be quasi-romantic. He's going to think, mistakenly, that the feelings he has at that moment will never leave. They will leave. I promise you. If I acted on feelings alone, this would have been gone years ago. And those of you who are married know the same. We often say about the person that we're married to, I just don't love him anymore, or I don't love her anymore. Which means what? It means I don't feel Love, so what? Because love is not a feeling. Second word, sign. The essence of a sacrament is to be a sign. What's the sign in marriage? Not the ring. The sign in marriage is the love of husband and wife. Hold on to this because this is extraordinary for those of you who are married. What's it point to? It points to him and to his love. But remember, it's a special kind of sign. It's the kind of sign that causes to happen what it signifies. Meaning what? Meaning you somehow, John, cause to happen for Mary his love made tangible to her. You're entrusted with the task and equipped with the grace so as to help her day in and day out, by your life, by the way you live, by your words, by your actions, by what you say, by what you don't say, to help her get a glimpse of him. That's the task of marriage, to make God present. His compassion, his kindness, his mercy, his generosity, his love, his goodness. That's an extraordinary task. Which brings us to the third word, power, because quite frankly, you can't do that. There's no way on your own you can do that. No more than I or he, when he's ordained, could possibly make present the love of Jesus on our own. I'm not that strong. Nor is he, nor are you. We need help. And so remember, the sacraments are signs which cause to happen what they signify. They give grace. What's grace? Grace is power. That's why this is such good news and so encouraging and comforting for those of you who are married, especially for those of you who are experiencing struggles or trials. Why is it good news? Because the gospel isn't about rolling up your sleeves and trying harder. The gospel is about tapping into God's power and his grace. The reason why it's so important to get married in church is not so that we can get a check so we can pay our bills. The reason why it's so important to get married at church is because of the blessing which is bestowed upon a husband and a wife on the day of their marriage. A blessing which is analogous to the blessing which a priest gives to bread and wine when he extends his hands over bread and wine. When a validly ordained minister extends his hands over bread and wine in the context of the liturgy, they change. They look the same, they taste the same, but they're not the same. 
They become, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. When a man and a woman are married in a church and a priest or a deacon extends his hands over them, they change. If you're married and you were married in a ceremony that was blessed by a priest or a deacon, you are not the same. You have access to power, which means you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, you promised us that there would be help to love like that, and we need it today. So help. That's great news. Mindful of that, I wonder if I could have all of you who are married, if you'd please stand. And I wonder if I could have Deacon Chris come up with me so that we can just ask the Lord's blessing once again upon you in thanksgiving for the vocation which he's called you to, which, by the way, was an arranged marriage. Those of you who are married are all in arranged marriages. Because Jesus says what God has joined, man must not divide. So he has arranged for you to come into each other's orbits because he has a plan for you. The plan is first and foremost to make his love tangible and present to each other, then to your children if you have them, and then to all the rest of us who ever know you. So we're going to ask the Lord's renewal upon you right now. Gracious and merciful Father, we thank you for the great gift of these, your sons and daughters, whom you have called to the sacrament of marriage. Encourage and inspire them this morning. Help them to know the noble task which you've entrusted to them. Give them comfort, especially to know that your power lies within them, that your grace is available to them, the grace to love heroically and nobly, the grace to forgive and to ask for forgiveness, the grace to love as Jesus loves by laying down their lives for each other and in so doing to find the fulfillment that you've made them and all of us for. Father, we thank you for these, our brothers and sisters. We ask that you continue to protect them from all the attacks of the evil one. Help them to be for each other and for all of us a concrete, visible, tangible sign of your extraordinary love. All this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 816. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 816. 2004 Mission Number 2. No Greater Love. Forgiveness. Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.